Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, The Psychiatrist's Guide to RODBT. This is good because I have no idea what that is. A lot of people have no idea what this is, which is why I want to talk about it. Radically Open Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or RODBT, is a new school of psychotherapy that was released to the public a few years ago after several decades of research. One question for you to start. Right off the bat, I just got to know, is this like firmly rooted in DBT or is this taking some elements from DBT and is it a departure yeah, in some way? That's a, that's a great question. It, it's definitely a separate school entirely run by separate individuals developed primarily by Thomas Lynch, a psychologist with NIH funding. I think he was at Duke earlier on. And, and the interesting thing is my experience is very parallel to his. And that's how I kind of discovered it and fell into RODBT that essentially came out of trying to apply DBT to certain populations not working right? Particularly like treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant anxiety, and a couple other conditions that I'm going to talk about. It wasn't working and it had to be modified. And eventually it wasn't just modified. It it transformed into its own thing. So RODBT is meant to treat what's called disorders of over-control. And one way to look at it is If you started making the necessary modifications to DBT to actually help somebody with a disorder of over-control, this is what would naturally kind of start to come out of it. Disorders of over-control because the person is trying to exert too much control over their life or they're trying to control things which are essentially beyond their ability to control? I would say maybe more like the person is um, temperamentally predisposed to over-control their emotions and their behavior. A quick shout out to Thomas Lynch, Erica Smith, and my level three instructors, Nicole, Sophia, and Kristen. Hopefully I'm doing this justice, but either way, I'm doing my best. What do you think, James, makes humans special? How are humans able to basically dominate all of the other species on the earth and live in inhospitable environments and outcompete other proto-humans? Well, I think it's probably due to our species' ability to create, enjoy, disseminate, and perfect pizza. I would say if I, I would say we're primarily a pizza-based society. Yes. And I think that if it weren't for pizza, well, for one thing, we wouldn't have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and I really think that society would have... No, I'm joking. I think <laughs> if I had to... Uh, put it onto one thing. Maybe it's our adaptability. That's a great one. I love that. There's a couple of pieces that you could point to, but from the RODBT perspective, and I firmly believe this to be true, humans aren't the fastest animal. They don't have the sharpest claws or the biggest teeth. We're not the best. (laughs) Other than James, who is (laughs) evolving into a new species unto himself. (laughs) And yet, you know, we're able to survive. And RODBT posits that What's special about humans is our hyper-cooperative nature. Interesting. Right. Our ability to form tribes, work together, even with perfect strangers sometimes, to enhance our our capacity for survival. In RODBT, often you can frame whatever somebody's going through in an evolutionary perspective, 
right? Imagining the individual as part of a tribe 10,000 or 15,000 years ago, right? Because an, an underlying, you know, reality about medicine in general is that humans have evolved to live a certain way for a couple hundred thousand years. And it's only been in the last couple hundred that things have kind of accelerated and changed. And so we're evolutionarily designed to live like hunter-gatherers or in tribes or in small civilizations, but we're living in a totally different post-industrial world. Mm. Um, and that often explains a lot of, you know, the internal conflict and external conflict that, that we encounter. And so RODBT often frames the individual's experience through that lens. That leads to one of the most interesting pieces of RODBT is that the main mechanism of change is something called social signaling. A social signal is basically anything that you say or do that's perceived by another person. Your body language, your facial expressions, your tone of voice, how loud your voice is, you drinking that can of whatever ginger ale or something straight canada dry that is a social signal right now and the idea is that the signals that you give off are picked up within milliseconds mostly unconsciously by the individuals around you and that affects their physiological arousal state and implicitly their social signaling which will then bounce back to you for example so you know if if you're an individual who tends to be kind of like me, you know, emotionally over-controlled, will tend to have a flat face and kind of like under-expressive emotions. That will be picked up by whoever I'm interacting with and it will make that person feel a certain way. What do you think the most threatening facial expression is? Hmm, probably an absence of one, right? Because you have no information, I would, I would surmise, you have no yeah. information to work off of. You have no idea what the other person is thinking or feeling. I agree. And there's evidence to back that up, that a flat face is really the most threatening facial expression, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody's making an angry face at you, at least you know where they stand, right? Sure. Like they're going to attack me. They need to either, you know, put my hands up or walk away, right? But if they're totally flat, you know, you don't know, is this person going to punch me? Are they going to hug me? Are they going to kiss me? I don't know, right? It, it's so funny. What I'm thinking of as you're saying this is my full-time job now, I'm essentially a consult liaison psychiatrist. I run a uh, addiction consult service. Uh, so, nine out of the 10 consults that I see are addiction psychiatry consults, but I do see a fair number of just straight CL consults, depression, anxiety, capacity, that kind of thing. I think one of the most influential of our mentors at Rutgers was this uh, amazing CL psychiatrist still there part-time and Douglas Opler. And he is just this incredible CL psychiatrist and something that struck me very early on, even in medical school. And I was at medical school watching Dr. Opler interview patients is that he has this kind of style where he walks into a room, his voice jumps up a couple octaves. He's very, um, he's expressive. Ver very expressive, very friendly, but people also immediately know that he's genuine. I always wondered, you know, why does he do this? And I think it's because he really wants people to feel at ease. You know, these are vulnerable people at low points in their lives. They're in a hospital. Nobody's in the mood to speak to a psychiatrist when they're already in the hospital dealing with what other, whatever other medical comorbidity they're dealing with. But if you have someone come into the room who is clearly excited to meet you and also immediately expressing empathy just in the tone of their voice, even if it's somewhat exaggerated, yeah. it kind of cuts through the monotony of the hospital and gets through to people. And I've noticed that that's kind of what I do too. When I walk into a room, I'm immediately kind of like overly expressive. My my voice is louder and higher than it already is. And I find that it 
it's kind of an immediate signal to most patients that, okay, um, this doctor isn't going to be in and out of my room in five seconds. Yeah. You know, clearly he's trying to engage me. Mm. And I feel like it sends a big message. And I'm just reminded of that when you're talking about this. Yeah. While, while we're on the subject, important point to any medical students that are listening. When you speak to a patient, sit down. Totally. Right? I was taught right from the beginning, you know, pull up a chair and sit down next to them at eye level. Don't stand over them. Right. Don't 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 make it look like you're going to run away. Even if you only have five minutes, you can mm -hmm. spend those five minutes sitting down. It'll feel like half an hour. Sure. Self-control is the ability to inhibit urges, impulses, behaviors or desires and delay gratification so that you can pursue long term goals. Um, does that sound like a, a good thing? Yes. I mean, um, the less you snack, the more getting back to the core issue here, the more pizza you can eat later. Um, <laughs> but if you're snacking throughout the day, when it, when it when it is pizza o'clock later, there's not going to be enough room. But if you can plan ahead, snack less, you're going to have room for more pizza. Right. So that implies that you at least have some level of self control. Exactly. Even if you have slip ups uh, during the day, you can recover <laughs> yes. later on. And that's a, actually a point and example because it relates to a couple of the disorders of over control. Inhibitory control is part of executive functioning. So executive functioning is one of the major domains of cognition. It can be thought of in several ways, but I think a useful way to look at it is the overlap of a few key functions, the ability to shift your attention or cognitive flexibility, your working memory and inhibitory control, right? Those, the interaction of those major functions, you know, all of which kind of occur in the front part of your brain, like we've talked about before, um, those things together make up executive functioning. So part of that is inhibitory control. And inhibitory control is really valued by most societies. Mastering discipline, being able to control your emotions, those are things that, that tend to be highly valued. Sure. So what's the problem? If that's what's highly valued, it doesn't always leave room for there to be natural and, and necessary moments when you're not able to exhibit that control. And instead of realizing that this is just one of those moments where it is not within your capability to affect a certain outcome, I think it becomes very distressing to people because they feel like I should be able right. to control this. So you're, you're striking at, at part of the core here, which is humans in general are kind of wired to want to control our environment, particularly when we're in any kind of distress. And someone who's a master at self-control will will maybe suffer under the delusion that they can control more than they can. Mm -hmm. right? People who are over-controlled, they tend to be rule followers. They tend to be detail-focused. Um, they can delay gratification. These are the people that are the doers, the savers, the planners, and people that work hard for the benefit of others and really the glue that holds our society together. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it's a double-edged sword, right? You can have too much of a good thing. If you're too over-controlled, you will have a tendency to alienate yourself from the people around you. If you have a tendency to be emotionally underexpressive, you know, you might come off as aloof, distant, cold, right? You might be making a, a flat facial expression, you know, maybe because you're yourself are uncomfortable, right? But that unconsciously within milliseconds is going to throw the other person that you're interacting with into a threat response, right? And they're going to be less likely to interact with you. And it turns into a, a positive feedback loop that eventually leads off into loneliness. Individuals that are over-controlled tend to be temperamentally kind of predisposed to be that way. Any human traits will be the combination of genetics and environment, 
right? But you can kind of see early on in child development, a kid who who's likely to have an OC temperament, OC meaning over control, right? Mm. So these are some of the core traits of, of temperament in general. And in this case of an OC temperament that you might pick up in, in yourself or even in a child. So OC individuals tend to have negative affectivity, which is to say that they have a high level of threat sensitivity. It's that they're anticipating bad experiences and they're kind of guarding against that by maintaining kind of a low level of, is that, is that what you're getting at? Yes, ish, except I think it's, it's even better to think of it um, as that their nervous system is wired kind of tightly. Right. Okay. And you'll see a lot of overlap in these disorders of over control with, for example, sensory processing disorders and other kind of soft neurological signs that don't get talked about enough, in my opinion. Gotcha. Their their nervous system is kind of wired a little bit sensitively to threats to begin gotcha. with. Right. I guess along with that is detailed focus processing of stimuli. Right. So these individuals will have a tendency to be highly detail oriented and those two things working together you could see how that would lead to for example like hypervigilance right if you're highly sensitive to picking up threats and you're super detail oriented so you're looking at you're very quickly processing things in the environment you're essentially born you know hypervigilant how many times have you had an individual who essentially has ptsd and you take the history and there's no quote unquote trauma right no big t trauma there sure yeah all the and time I'm, and, I, you know, I would think like, am, are we missing something? Is there some deeply repressed childhood trauma that I don't know about? Mm. If you have that experience, start thinking whether that individual might be temperamentally overcontrolled, right? Mm. Because some individuals will be essentially predisposed to develop PTSD from even what would be considered minor trauma. Right? Interesting. It's gotcha. just the way their nervous system is wired. Two more traits are positive affectivity or reward sensitivity, right? OC individuals tend to have low reward sensitivity. And finally, effortful control, which is what we were talking about this whole time, right? A, a high capacity to inhibit their behaviors, right? To, to not act on the things that they might want or need. Gotcha. A child that's at risk for OC coping and social isolation might be inhibited, shy, timid, risk avoidant, and emotionally constrained. On the other hand, I would say maybe the best example would be borderline personality disorder. Mm. That's really characterized by emotional under control. Interestingly enough, OC individuals will often be misdiagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Interesting. And usually that happens because of a phenomenon called emotional leakage. OC individuals will tend to kind of keep their emotions in, bottled up. They don't display them to the outside world. They bottle it up, bottle it up, bottle up, and then something happens and they explode, mm -hmm. right? And there's a huge emotional display. That's usually when for adolescents or kids, they end up coming to the emergency room, right? Sure. And so you see them after that episode of looking like they're out of control and you start thinking that this person has a disorder of not being able to control their emotions. And then, for example, you might take a history and you might find out that they cut, mm -hmm. that they have an eating disorder. And that's the way that those emotions kind of come out, but it's not necessarily indicative of, of the actual underlying diagnosis. So you have to look more closely, right? Because mm -hmm. usually that those three things right there, right? An explosive episode, finding out that they, they cut, they have disordered eating, you know, a couple of things like that. To the uninitiated, that right there starts ringing alarms for... Borderline personality disorder, exactly. all that stuff, yeah. But you have to ask more questions, right? Because mm -hmm. like, why are they cutting? Where are they cutting, right? Mm -hmm. OC individuals cut 
by the way, when I say cut, I'm referring to self-harm, right? Sure. They'll cut just as often as, as under-controlled individuals, but they'll have a tendency to do it in ways that nobody will find out. So maybe in the palm of the hand or somewhere on the body where it can't be seen, right? Interesting. If you ask them why they cut, the explanation might be different. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to hear that they're doing it because they felt that they needed to be punished, right? Interesting. They're punishing And they themselves. wanted to take control even of that. These are individuals that have a tendency to suffer from self-conscious emotions, mm. guilt, shame, and they'll take punishment into their own hands. There is some overlap. You know, I think most people will say that it's to relieve emotional distress, which it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it tends to be different. It tends to be less impulsive, more planned, right? More thought out. Same thing with suicide attempts, right? OC individuals concern me a lot more than UC individuals when it comes to suicide, but they're, they're less likely to tell you about it. Um, and their suicide attempts are a lot more likely to be deliberately planned out, researched for weeks. They'll go on the internet. I would imagine. More serious, more effective. Yeah. They're not impulsive, right? This isn't the individual that swallows like five pills and then texts their partner and says, I, I swallowed pills, I'm going to die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This individual researched it for weeks, said this combination of pills will definitely end my life. They won't tell anybody. They'll do the ingestion and you'll find out when they're throwing up on the floor. Sure. Yeah. Right. You know, in contrast, the temperament of a, of a under-controlled individual, like you were saying before, would be you know, they might have high threat sensitivity too, but they're probably more likely to have positive affectivity, right? High, high reward sensitivity, like you were saying, and less inhibitory control. Got it. ADHD is an interesting one because just like you were saying, you know, quickly, you might think, especially if you think of like hyperactive ADHD, that they can be under controlled. But, you know, there's there's several ways to kind of split ADHD, right? One is what you said before, you know, hyperactive, impulsive versus inattentive. But even that doesn't explain the split entirely. Another way to think of it is what's the underlying personality structure? I think that strikes a little bit to the core, right? I think there's cluster B individuals with ADHD. Sure. And there's also cluster C individuals with ADHD. I probably see more more, more cluster C personality structure with ADHD. And it, oh, yeah. it leads to an interesting trait because even individuals who are impulsive and maybe less hyperactive, but even individuals who are impulsive can be over-controlled. And it cuts against this idea of high degrees of inhibitory control. You know, they might have high, higher reward sensitivity and not be able to, to control their emotions, but they might have some of these other features, right? Mm. Um, you know, more of the high threat sensitivity of the detail focus processing of really kind of what I think of as like temper C personality structure, right? The, the, over-conscientiousness, tendency to suffer from self-conscious emotions, right? And that leads to an interesting conundrum sometimes because, for example, individuals with like ADHD and OCPD or ADHD and social anxiety disorder, it it looks tricky, right? Because they might be more expressive and have more friends, right? Sure. But then, you know, they'll spend the next week ruminating about whatever interaction they had with somebody, right? Exactly. And, and in terms of the, in terms of the more ADHD side of things, it's like either the life of the party, but oftentimes the things that they do to become the life of the party are the things that can also stigmatize them and separate them from others. Right. So here are some of the, what I would call disorders of over-control with the caveat that over-control is a transdiagnostic concept. Sure. Right. It's, so, this is not, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not really that accurate. I think to say that these are disorders of over-control, it's easier to kind of understand it that way, right? Mm -hmm. Most likely individuals with these disorders will have high 
OC traits, right? And, you know, I see here anorexia nervosa, um, OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant anxiety, as you said, autism spectrum disorders. I think that's an interesting one. Mm hmm. Um, that's another one, by the way. And I'm currently part of the special interest group within the RODBT community, you know, researching how to apply it to autistic individuals, because I think that's another one that similarly to ADHD kind of cuts different ways at different times. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting list. It's yeah. a it, maladaptive perfectionism, social anxiety mm -hmm. disorder, even OCD. Definitely. It's interesting how it kind of cuts across as a trait. It kind of right. cuts across. Um, all of these things, it's which is really interesting. And what you'll see, again, one of those other aha moments that just helped me understand my patients more, you will see individuals that have all of these things, right? That have like mm -hmm. a bunch of these, these things. And like, yeah, you could diagnose them with five things, right? But if you look at it from this lens, you'll see that these are all really outward man manifestations of the over-controlled temperament that I was describing before. Mm. Maladaptive perfectionism, OCPD, anorexia nervosa, those are all cousins so closely linked that they're really one disorder, right? Sure, sure. Um, the, the most common cause of treatment-resistant depression is underlying OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Interesting. Hmm. So, I mean, by definition, someone with anorexia has to have a high degree of inhibitory control, right? Mm -hmm. It requires yeah. an incredible amount of discipline and self-control to be able to stop eating. Yeah. Right? It's impossible for most individuals. Also, shout out to this book I'm showing you. It's the Radically Open DBT Workbook for Eating Disorders. It was written by Dr. Karen Hall, Dr. Fletcher, Dr. Simic, and a foreword by Dr. Lynch, who's a developer of RODBT. This was published, you know, just a few months ago, and you can pick it up on Amazon. I think it's it's great for anybody who either has, you know, maybe an eating disorder, primarily anorexia, and a family member that may suffer from an eating disorder. It mm -hmm. really adapts RODBT specifically to eating disorders and, and helps you look at it again. Like I was saying, you know, instead of the diagnosis, look at the underlying issue, right? That it's really a disorder of over-control. Mm. Usually in anorexia, it's really the lack of social connection, right? The feeling of social isolation, the feeling of judgment by others. In someone who has a high degree of inhibitory control and maybe a, a, a penchant for perfectionism and idealization, you know, it's usually somebody with that kind of personality structure that might even have OCPD full-blown that somewhere along the way starts to be reinforced by society to the idea that being thin is, is good, right? equals goodness, right? Yeah. You know, it, it can be very insidious, but usually something flips in their mind where they start to believe unconsciously that everything in their life that's not going the way that they want it to, the stuff that's not allowing them to be perfect, that they can fix by restricting their eating, right? Mm. It's almost like they unconsciously believe that if they can just be skinny enough, then they'll be happy. Yeah. And th the reality is it's not true, right? They'll never be skinny enough to be happy because your problem isn't that you're not skinny. Right? You know, it's, a, it's interesting. I wonder if eventually with additional research, I wonder if some use disorders Absolutely. will be considered. I knew, I knew you were going there. Um, because it's the same thing with my patients, you know, if they take that hit, things are going to be okay, at least yeah. for the next four hours. If they don't, then it won't. The common thread there is maladaptive avoidance coping. Mm -hmm. it really, anorexia is an addiction. You can think of it as an addiction. It's a sure. really yeah. logical way to think of it. And cutting, right? Same thing. It tends to be maladaptive avoidance coping, right? So 
something in your life is stressing you out. And by the way, it's usually your relationships because again, we're humans, a hyper cooperative species that are designed to live in tribes, right? You feel rejection or isolation, right? Or shame. Mm -hmm. And that whatever it is that's causing that distress is so intense that you need to do something, right? You need some sort of coping mechanism to take it away, right? Sure. And sometimes those coping mechanisms come in the form of drinking alcohol, snorting heroin, cutting yourself, right? And what happens is you're super stressed out, you cut yourself or you use the substance, the anxiety goes away mm -hmm. and it, it tends to reinforce the anxiety, right? Because the problem is you felt better temporarily, but you didn't deal with the thing that was stressing you out, right? So as soon as the high wears off, that All life situation is still there. And now because you, your emotion mind learned that by cutting or by hitting this, this pipe, I feel better. Now the anxiety is even higher and the desire to use the substance is mm -hmm. even higher, right? And it tends to be a self-fulfilling cycle, right? A self-reinforcing yeah. cycle. So, so, so for me as a learner, and sometimes it's easier because like I'm the one who was like receiving this is like what you've set the table with is you set the, the first thing I feel like we did was we addressed like the need for this which was born out of like your a clinical observation that you had, which is that you were trying to deploy DBT, but it wasn't working. And the reason why it wasn't working was because you maybe had a fundamental misunderstanding diagnostically of what was going on because you weren't taking into account this kind of transdiagnostic idea of over control Precisely. and temperament. And so I feel like that's a, that's a great, a great summary. The, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the under controlled individuals who are screaming and yelling and, you know, making noise and getting the nurses all frustrated, get most of the attention. And we end up a lot of our training is kind of designed to try to control people's behavior, right, or teach them how to control their behavior. But most of our patients actually are more OC. And their problem is that they're too good at controlling their behavior. And if you try to teach them, you'll see DBT can be adapted adapted in theory for over control but that's essentially what this is right because you'll see in the skills it'll say stay in control you know control pops up there a lot and 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 really you're you're probably making that individual worse because the problem is they need to stop controlling their emotions so much and something that i think is really useful for me even as someone who does not treat you know nine out of ten times i'm treating use disorders but something that's always useful to me as a diagnostician are ideas and traits that cross the boundaries between diagnoses and unify them and help me think about them more broadly. You know, when I was in training, one of my amazing psychotherapy supervisors, a psychologist, really did think about all personality disorders on a spectrum. And she didn't think it was so useful to draw such a line in the sand between, for example, narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. And, right. and the fact of the matter is she was right. You know, a lot of the patients who demonstrate some of those traits yeah. demonstrate things from other ones. Absolutely. And I think for me, taking away from what we've talked about today, the idea that this concept of over control can really kind of bridge some of these, in some cases, very disparate diagnoses like OCPD all the way to ASD all the way to treatment resistant depression. You know, these these are things that are kind of siloed, but in in terms of this shared trait, right. I think it's very diagnostically rich to think of them as connected in that yeah. way. I'll end with one of my favorite quotes, something Thomas Lynch says often. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. 
We'd like to sign off as always by reminding our listeners that if you need help, it is out there and we definitely encourage you to seek it out. Um, You do not have to suffer alone. There are a huge number of mental health professionals in this country who would be happy to help, whether it's depression, anxiety, um, you know, negative thoughts, negative self-image, addiction, you know, whatever you might be going through, there's someone out there who, who can and wants to help. You can find them in a variety of ways. You can find them using your own health insurance if you happen to have it. You can find them using resources at university hospitals that usually have free or low-cost mental health services. You can also use Psychology Today or other publications like that. And we really would just encourage you, if you're suffering, to reach out and get some help. And remember, mental health issues, they're not a sign of weakness. They're not moral failings. They're medical conditions that can be treated. All right. I think that's it, James. So until next time. Adios. Peace.